You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. Each week, you'll hear compelling conversations from events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. This episode features Robert D. Putnam discussing his latest book, Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis. He's joined by the Institute's Walter Isaacson for the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series, a regular event at the Institute presenting conversations with notable authors. Putnam is the Peter and Isabel Malkin Professor of Public Policy at Harvard. He has received numerous scholarly honors, including the National Humanities Medal, the nation's highest honor for contributions to the humanities. Putnam has consulted for the last three American presidents, the last three British prime ministers, the last French president, prime ministers from Ireland to Singapore, and hundreds of grassroots leaders and activists around the world. He has written 14 books and been translated into more than 20 languages. His books Bowling Alone and Making Democracy Work are among the most cited publications in the social sciences in the last half century. Putnam's latest book, Our Kids, is a rigorous examination of the growing inequality gap among America's young people. According to Putnam, one of the main reasons for the widening gap is the changing, more limited definition of the term Our Kids. He says what used to be a collective term in the 1950s for the larger society has narrowed to mean one's own children. To make a more egalitarian America, Putnam says it's crucial to invest in our nation's poor kids, but some people are reluctant to do so because they don't feel they see a return on that type of investment. Putnam argues that doing so is actually a positive-sum game. Walter Isaacson is the president and CEO of the Aspen Institute and has authored biographies of Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, and Benjamin Franklin. Most recently, he wrote The Innovators, How a Group of Hackers, Geniuses, and Geeks Created the Digital Revolution. Here are Walter Isaacson and Robert Putnam. I feel really passionately about this book because it describes what the consequences for our kids are of some of the big trends that we're aware of in general in America. We've become a more economically polarized country, we all know that. Less well-known as we're a socially segregated, more socially segregated society. We're less likely to live near people or, or uh, go to school with people or uh, uh, marry people from a different social class than we were a generation ago. So we've become a more socially polarized place, a more po economically polarized place. Uh, there have been some other big uh, changes. And I wanted to look at what are the implications for those changes for our kids, for children in America. Um, and the more we looked, the more horrified, frankly, we were by what we found, because what we found was growing gaps between what in this book we call rich kids and poor kids um, on many, many measures of child well-being. But, by rich kids and poor kids, I don't mean Bill Gates's kids or Warren Buffett's kids and, and some homeless family. I mean the upper part of the American um, socioeconomic hierarchy that I'm talking about um, are just people who are college graduates or their children. Can I see the hands of all the people in the room who are college graduates, please? So when I say rich, I mean you. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so I don't mean rich, rich, rich. I just mean you're in the upper third. By being, having a college degree, you're in the upper third of American society. And the lower third are people who have not got past high school. And that's, you can see a gap between kids coming from college-educated backgrounds and high school-educated backgrounds, a growing gap on many, many measures of, of child well-being. How much 
money their parents spend, them, how, spend on them, how much time their parents spend with them, what we call good night moon time, the quality of schools they go to, um, the, what is the, the stability of their families, big difference, but growing gap between rich kids and poor kids and the stability of families, growing gap to in the support that they get from their from neighbors and churches and community institutions. And that's the connection with my earlier work on, on bowling alone, because now I can see more clearly than I did when I wrote Bowling Alone that the ultimate victims of this increasing individualism of American society are our kids. Um, or rather, um, I now see that, that, that what I described in Bowling Alone meant that when we use the word our kids, we now have a more shriveled sense of what counts as our mm -hmm. kids. When, when I was growing up in Ohio in the 1950s and people used the term, we gotta do things for our kids. Well, my parents said, we gotta, you know, we gotta pay higher taxes so our kids will have a swimming pool or a, or a French department or whatever. They did not mean my sister and me. Mm -hmm. They meant all the kids in town. But if you go back to Port Clinton nowadays and, and talk to people, when they say our kids, they mean my biological kids. And poor kids in town now are seeing, well, she's not my kid. She's somebody else's kid. Let them worry about her. That's the, the way in which the, the trends in bowling alone, the more individual, the focus on more individualism and less shared responsibility, that's the way those trends come to bear on, on kids. Your book is a combination of stories and facts, right? right. Uh, socio-economic uh, analysis on the one hand, but real people, real kids. Right. And it starts, as you just said, in Port Clinton, Ohio, 1959, right. I think, when you graduate. Right. I don't mean to give away your age. No, why not? Um, <laughs> I'm 74. <laughs> That's right. And proud of it. <laughs> uh, uh, what were the stories of the people from your class in Port Clinton versus the stories that happened now? Well, I always have to begin by saying Port Clinton in the 1950s, America in the 1950s, was not an ideal, ideal place. There was lots of uh, injustice and inequality, and that was true for, especially for the few black kids in town. And, and of course, women in that era faced a, a glass ceiling as soon as they got out of high school. Um, but, um, so there was, there was gender and racial inequality. But in t class terms, um, it was a remarkably egalitarian time and place. And that's not just, you know, seeing the past through gold-colored lenses. Um, we went back and, and talked to and interviewed basically all of my surviving high school classmates of the class of 1959. Port Clinton was a very modest town when I was growing up there. Not, nobody very rich, nobody very poor. Uh, almost half of the parents of my kids in my graduating class had not graduated from high school. So this is a pretty not backward, but a pretty modest place. Um, but of my classmates, almost 80% of us did better than our parents in education and, and, um, and income and so on. Um, we had a remarkable upward climb. Um, as many of my classmates said when we talked to them, um, we were poor, but we didn't know it. But actually, in fact, we were immensely rich, and we didn't know it, because we were rich in social support from our parents and from, our, from the community and so on. Um, and so there were two black kids in my uh, graduating class. Uh, they faced serious racism in Portland. There were cross burnings and so on that are described in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and nevertheless, and they came from homes in which nobody had gotten past third grade 
nobody in their family had ever gotten past third grade. They both graduated from high school, big deal, big upward mobility from third grade to high school degree in one generation. They both went to college. They both graduated from college. They went to college because they had mentors in the uh, community. Exactly right. They had, and actually, white mentors in the community. Um, uh, in the case of the, of the black guy, um, I keep, I guess in the book we call him Jesse. Jesse. I keep trying, these are named, I know them real, in real life, so I, but I have to pause and not give the name away, but Jesse, uh, white coach, not a, you know, as he says very gently in the book, the white coach may have actually been kind of racist, but he held Jesse to high standards and expected Jesse to do well. No tyranny of low expectations there on the football field and helped Jesse to get a college football scholarship. Even more striking was the woman we call Cheryl. Um, she's, she's had a terrific life and she's really smart. She was one of the smartest kids in the class. But the most, and she's, she's aware, deeply aware, even now, of the price she paid because of the color of her skin. But the most remarkable turning point in her life was when one of the, the, the wife of one of the CEOs in town, for whom she, Cheryl cleaned, uh, was recognized that Cheryl was a hard worker and that she was smart. And, and this woman recognized that, asked Cheryl one day, are you going to college? And Cheryl said, no, nobody in my, ham my family can't imagine my going to college. And uh, the, the matron said, well, surely the school's going to make you go to college or help you get to college. And Cheryl said, no, it doesn't look like that's happening. And then I'm more or less now quoting Cheryl. And she put on her fur coat, and she put on her fur hat, and she marched onto the high school, and she pounded on the desk and said, this girl is smart. You better get her to college. And that's why the, wo the woman went to college. Our kids' mentality. Yes, exactly. Now, when we went back to Port Clinton, um, a couple of years ago, and my um, ethnogra ethnographic team, especially um, uh, Jen uh, Silva, who is the terrific ethnographer here in the book, began interviewing poor kids in Port Clinton now, poor, poor white kids mostly in Port Clinton now. I honestly, at first, Walter didn't believe. I wondered, where did she find these kids? Because they're, like Mary Sue, one of these kids that we, who's essentially a throwaway child and is, is um, her father, neither her father nor her mother have ever been married, and there have been sort of changing partnerships going through the family, and Mary Sue um, was left alone for long periods of time, you know, it locked in her, her room, her, her, yeah, her room, and uh, dropped out of high school, got involved in selling drugs, um, uh, went to juvenile detention, um, hasn't got any serious um, skill. She goes from man to man, hoping she'll find somebody who will provide her help and, and protection. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, she told us that the guy she's with now has found a job for her as a model in Toledo. And then two weeks ago, she said on Facebook, um, she saw the solution. Her, solution the fact, her problem is that nobody in her life loves her and cares for her, so she's going to have a baby. And honestly, when I first heard that story, I thought, this can't be Port Clinton. How could this be in this little town? But it is, and there are more. What we discovered, I don't want to sell, tell sob stories only, and, and there's all the data there is in the book, in these chapters, is to say this is not Putnam just making up sob stories. There, you, can, you can see what the data look like, but honestly, if you see these stories, 
I, I almost could not write some of these stories because they were so painful. And, and Port Clinton actually is, is like the rest of the country in another way now. Um, Port Clinton, what happened to Port Clinton after I left there was basically it's a Rust Belt town and it, the, the economy you know, went down and, and, that's, and, and that's why Mary Sue's parents have never held a job. But it's got a great site on Lake Erie. Port Clinton has a wonderful site on Lake Erie. And in the last 20 years, that site has been, there's essentially one long gated community that's 20 miles long and about 150 yards deep um, with million dollar mansions. So let's talk about that other end of the socioeconomic sure. spectrum in the comparison from 59 to today. I think the rich kid in your class was a guy named Frank. Yep. And the uh, rich uh, kid today is a uh, young girl named Chelsea. Right. Well, Frank, I just saw Frank a couple of weeks ago, actually, we were because we were out doing a TV shot out there. And Frank's a wonderful guy. And, and it's all, this sounds a little silly. He was by far the richest kid in our class, although none of us knew that. I didn't know that, actually, until not long ago. His, his grandfather had memorably said, when you go off to New York or Cleveland, even, you can drink whatever you want to drink. But if the kids are drinking Coke in Portland, you drink Coke. And, in other words, don't flaunt your wealth. Exactly. Um, and now Chelsea, you know, what is this, 50 years later, I mean, she's flaunting her wealth, but her parents have built a 1950s style um, uh, diner in their basement so that she could have kids home. Every year they have a birthday party for her and they hire limousines to, so that the kids coming to the birthday party can be picked up. And come and come to their home, their beautiful but home. But do the parents also have an our kids mentality that they care about other people's kids? <laughs> no, they don't. I mean, she, the grand, the mother, and Chelsea's mother actually, as we quote in the book, says she doesn't understand why her kids should have to, or she or her kid, her kids should have to pay for anybody else's kids. They're 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 somebody else's kids. Let them worry about them. And that encapsulates this change. This happened in Port Clinton, and in fact, I think it's happened across the United States. So half the book is these stories that give real flesh and blood, almost gut-wrenching meaning right. to your themes. The other half is um, socioeconomic analysis, right. including what are called scissors graphs. Right. Um, I could point them out, but why don't you tell us uh, what the scissors graphs are and what the most shocking of those are? Well, there are a lot of them. Scissors graphs, the horizontal axis is uh, time. So over here, we have you know, 1960, 1970, and over here, we have now. And the vertical axis is some, some good thing for kids, like spending time with kids or spending money on kids or whatever. And it's the scissors graphs, we, we, call it, we say, because over time, the graph for kids coming from high school-educated homes, my, my grandchildren and your children or grandchildren, are getting better and better. But on those same measures, kids coming from the lower third of uh, America are getting worse and worse. That's, and that, that scissors graphs, if you see what I mean by scissors graph, the gap, the opportunity gap, is the growing gap. So you can see that gap in... Why don't you give one example so yeah, people I can will. see it? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, I was good, just about yeah, to. Okay. Um, uh, you can see it in the amount of time parents spend uh, reading to their kids, uh, what we call good night moon time. There's now, didn't used to be any gap at all between any social, social class gap in the amount of time parents spend reading to their kids. Now there's a 45 minute a day gap. My grandchildren get 45 minutes a day more reading time than Mary Sue did. And I don't mean that literally. I'm talking about the Mary Sues versus my, my own grandchildren. And if you know about 
modern brain science, you know that is unbelievably important because that's the way the brain develops. The brain develops, the infant brain develops through verbal interaction with other adults. So there are similar graphs for the amount of money we spend on kids, similar graphs for the amount of social support they get from their community, similar graphs in terms, big graphs in terms of family stability. Um, all, now more than 90% of all kids being raised in college educated homes are being raised in two-parent families as compared to now only about 30% of kids being raised in high school educated homes are being raised in two-parent families. I'm not making a moral point about that. I'm just saying it's hard to it's harder to raise kids if you have got only one parent at home. So there and there are gap big gaps also in all these other support systems that we from from schools to churches to to um, uh, you know, scouts and all of those things, you can see these, even including extracurricular activities. Extracurricular activities, I, I kind of hyperventilate about extracurricular activities because extracurricular activities were not invented by God. High school football was not invented by God. It was invented by educational reformers to give all kids in school a chance to learn soft skills, teamwork and, and grit and delayed gratification and so on. But because of pay to play nationwide, uh, now, over the last 20 years, if you want to play football in high school, I, the good taxpayers of Port Clinton paid for my cleats and my pads and my helmet and the, and the Friday night lights. Now, if you want to play football in Port Clinton High School and elsewhere around the country, on average, you've got to pay $400 per kid per sport. So that's $1,600 if you've got two kids in school. If your annual income is $200,000, $1,600 for your kids to take part in sports is nothing. But if your annual income is $16,000, as a lot of Americans live on, a lot of American families live on, you're not going to pay 10% of your total annual salary for, for sports. And that means I'm, I'm, I'm trying to show how across a very wide range of indicators, kids increasingly are, in, their, their chances in life are influenced not by their own skills and abilities, but by their parents' resources. And that, I mean, for example, um, there's a graph in the book that I find in some sense just unbelievably disheartening when you try to predict who's going to graduate from high school based on test scores and parents' income. Now, you're not surprised that rich kids who are smart, who have high test scores, are very likely to graduate from college. 70, 80 percent of them graduate from college. And poor, dumb kids, if I can put it that way, are very unlikely to graduate from college. But smart, Poor kids are less likely to graduate from college now than dumb, rich kids. And that, that absolutely, I don't mean dumb, I mean just low test scores, right? That, that just is a, a, exactly the opposite of what the American dream was. It shouldn't, your, your chances of life shouldn't depend upon your parents, they should depend upon you. When I first read this book, it began to cause me to see two or three times an hour sometimes, examples of it. And I think you talk about that, like being on a bus and watching uh, a mother to Harry to play I Spy or things like that. Yeah, it's, I, you know, the, this, is, this is a problem, I think, that is worse in part because of one of the big changes that I mentioned at the, at the outset, that is the, the growing segregation of American society. So it's just a factually true that well-meaning folks coming from higher up in the, in, the, um, in the social hierarchy, by which I mean us, well-meaning folks coming from that, are much less likely actually to know or to contact or to interact with poorer kids 
than, than we were, people like us were a couple of generations ago. And that means I don't think we, unless we go looking for it, unless we're aware of what's happening, I don't think we have a sense of how bad things have gotten for people you know, at the lower part of the, from the lower part of the economic hierarchy. This is not, there are important racial differences in America. But this gap is not about race. This is about social class. You can see the gap, the growing gap, only among white folks or mm. only among black folks. There, I, I want to be clear. There are important racial discrepancies still in America. We've not solved the racial problem. But for poor black kids, this is overlaid on that racial problem. And it's getting wor this part is getting worse. You uh, talked about how there's a divergence of whether or not you're going to graduate from college. And you said, you know, 90% if, right. you know, come from a rich and well-off family versus whatever. But I think the difference has grown over the past 40 years, like 50 percentage points almost. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem yeah. is that, yeah, the scissors. Yeah, exactly. I mean, of course, it might be bad enough if you said, well, you know, rich kids have a much better, in all these respects, have much better chances than poor kids. But this is the change. It didn't used to be that within living memory, within, well, at least within living memory of many of the people in the room, we had a much more egalitarian, in America, we, it was much more egalitarian. America was not, I'm not saying to say America was perfect, but in this respect, we've gotten a, a lot worse. And, you know, I hate to say this because I don't like to be just a Cassandra, but if we do nothing about it, it's going to get worse. We ain't seen nothing yet unless we begin to, address this problem. Think about Mary Sue's baby, right? I mean, just think about that. Um, yeah. Well, the great equalizer that kept the divergence from happening and right. instead allowed equal opportunity used to be K through 12 education. Right. Why is that no longer the case? Well, um, I have to say, first of all, things that are under the control of schools, like tracking, for example, have contributed almost nothing to the growth, growth of this gap. This is not a problem that the schools caused in America. And I say that because we have a tendency in America to blame everything on the schools. If only the schools were doing a better job, we wouldn't have this problem. The schools didn't cause this problem. That's not to say that schools couldn't help fix the problem. Um, but the reason that the problem in schools is getting worse is primarily because the most important thing about the school you go to is who else is going there. If you go to school and there are other affluent kids from affluent, well-educated backgrounds there, you're going to be better off no matter what your background is. And if you go to a school that draws on low-income students, you're going to be worse off no matter what your family income. And if you put that fact, which has been established in the sociological education literature for a long time, together with the fact that we're increasingly segregated by class so that we've got rich folks, it's more and more likely now that rich kids are going to school with other rich kids and poor kids are going to school with other poor kids. There are things we need to do to fix that, but it wasn't, I mean, things we needed to do in schools to fix that, but it wasn't the schools that caused that problem. Is that making sense? We yeah, caused that problem. Caused that problem. Um, I, last week I spent um, most of the week out in California, spent time at Khan Academy, you mm -hmm. know, which, uh, where right. uh, Sal Khan is using the internet and digital learning right. to try to get a world-class education for every kid. He also start, started something that I saw called um, Khan Academy, I mean, um, the lab school, the Khan lab school, right. where he's testing out these things. And in the lab school, it was all what you would call rich or very privileged kids. Right. Uh, and it, 
stays open until 6 p.m. and it's 11 months a year right. and it's six days a week and they have a lot of technology. Do you think that the internet is going and has been helping to uh, close this economic uh, divergence or exacerbate it? Uh, it's making it, making it worse. But not because, I say that, not because I'm anti-technology at all. I mean, I'm probably as much, as much plugged in as anybody else here. And, and excuse me while I check my... Um, yeah, right. <laughs> um, I watched him check all of his right. electronic devices earlier. Um, but because it turns out now, 10, 15 years ago, we talked about the digital divide, meaning then the fear was that rich kids might have more access to the Internet than poor kids. But that's not true. That's, that access gap is closed. Um, so um, just about all the kids we talk to all across America, not just in Portland, have uh, smartphones of various sorts. But when you watch how kids use technology, rich kids use it. Sorry, rich kids. I mean, kids that are well-educated use it in ways that are more calculated to help them with make make progress in their in their lives like the, the Khan Academy you're talking about and poor kids because they lack the surrounding support of, of other adults tend to use it just for for entertainment and that I guess the, the the basic point there that I really want to emphasize is all of the evidence that, that we pull together in this book in some sense the bottom line is Kids, poor kids, kids coming from the lower third of American society are increasingly isolated from everyone. They're isolated from their parents because their parents, their families are, are, are uh, unstable. They're isolated from schools. They're isolated from churches because there's a gap there too. They're isolated from community organizations. They're isolated from their neighbors. Mary Sue recently posted on her website, um, love hurts, trust kills. Think about living in a world in which you could not trust anybody. And the fact that these kids are increasingly isolated from everyone, not only from their own families, but from other people that might have helped once upon a time, means that lots of bad things happen to them. We include, they don't get help in trying to figure out how to use the, the internet and other technology. Another striking consequence is what we call uh, airbags. Um, all kids get in trouble, right? If your kids have not gotten in trouble, just wait. They will. Um, so all kids get in, rich kids and poor kids and black kids and white kids, and all kids get in trouble. But when one of our kids, I mean by that, kids from, from educated backgrounds, gets in trouble, instantly airbags inflate to protect the child. Um, so we, we have a friend of ours. This is a true story. Actually, all of my stories are true, true stories. I try, try not to use the real people's names, but we have some friends. Um, a woman, uh, called, a friend of my wife's, called a couple of weeks ago to say, um, just terrible. She was devastated. Her, one of her grandsons had been picked up out in Colorado, actually. Um, uh, allegedly, the claim was he was selling drugs, and probably that, that may very well be true. Um, and you can imagine the grandmother, my wife's friend, was devastated. And, well, what's it going to do to the family and all that kind of stuff? And she was worried about the, her grandson. But then she said, but, you know, my granddaughter's flown out there. We've got the best lawyer in town, um, and, we've, and we've found the right um, rehab place back here in, Colorado, in uh, Connecticut, and so it'll probably all work out. Airbags, right? You see that? If exactly the same thing had happened to a black kid on the Lower East Side, of, of, on the, lower, the South Side, I mean, of, of Chicago, no airbags. Or if the same thing had happened to Mary Sue, no airbags. And 
so it's relevant to the the degree of to which the internet can be helpful. It's relevant to these lives of these kids. There's they don't have anybody coaching them. In they don't have their parents coaching them. They don't have the coaches coaching them because they're dropping out of extracurriculars. Um, of course, there are larger, big causes as to why that's happened: the growing income gap in America and the so social segregation. So but when you get down to the kid, when you think poor kid, think isolated kid, mm -hmm. and then think it's tough to grow up isolated. So it gets back to your social capital I do and think bowling it does. alone, yeah. where I mean, there's not quite as many uh, mentors, pastors, preachers, you know, or yeah. community leaders saving these kids. Right. I don't. I don't. I don't want to kind of come across silly as saying if only we could get all these kids in football, that would solve the problem. Uh, but uh, but I'm trying to use practical examples to indicate ways in which we, we used to take care of everybody's kid. It used to be a coach. It used to be an after-school program. It used to be, yeah, yeah. shop even in the afternoon. Right. And um, one of the things where you sort of see this, even not just an airbag, but little things, and I've noticed with the kids from New Orleans who right. after the hurricane we got to, if you don't have a credit card, you can't really get a cell phone that easily. <laughs> if you don't have a cell phone, you can't be connected to people right. that easily. You also can't have a plan that allows you data so that you can pick up your iPhone and find out you know, who King Canute was or whatever. Absolutely right. So how, how does that play you, in? You can see it. I mean, another one of the kids from uh, Port Clinton, uh, poor kids from Port Clinton that we that we talked to is a guy, we, in the book he's called David. Mm -hmm. um, David, as another kid, has just had a horrible life. Um, uh, we recently were trying to get in touch with David again um, and can't get in touch with him because his iPhone has been, I mean, his, his phone has been shut off because yeah. he can't afford it. Mm -hmm. um, so, but you know, I think, I don't want to, I don't want to come to the conclusion here that you know, America's going to hell in a handbasket and, and we can't do anything about it. There have been previous periods in our history when America has ha faced problems like this. In, in, in the best example is the, is the Gilded Age, the, yeah. at the begin, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, when we faced a problem very much like this. And, you know, I don't want to go off and give a lecture now on the, on the progressive era, but there are a lot of deep parallels between that period right. and this period. And if period. you read Doris Kearns Goodwin, Absolutely. The Bully Pulpit, you see that what Teddy Roosevelt does with almost the exact same situation, exactly. the scissors, the widening gap, right. et cetera, is he says, okay, we're going to have a square deal, which is basically every kid has a decent opportunity. That's right. And the other really interesting thing about that period, it is, I mean, I think Doris and I have talked about going on the road together because she's got the solution to my problem, or his, her period had the solution to my period. Um, um, the thing to notice about the progressive era is that there was a lot of national discussion at that time about these, these challenges. That's what Teddy Roosevelt especially was doing, but a lot of other people too at the national level. <clears throat> Pardon me, but most of the actual um, policy innovations that came to fix that problem did not come from Washington. That national conversation gave oxygen to local reformers in places all around America. And so the, the innovations in that time came from, you know, Galveston and, and uh, Toledo and uh, the Wyoming territories uh, and, and Iowa, Kansas. The, the American high school 
God did not invent American high schools. High schools were invented by small towns in Iowa and Kansas and the Midwest in this period so that kids, with the idea that these are all our kids, we're all going to be better off if we give all of them a secondary education, free secondary, free, you know, secondary education. That turned out, and then the idea spread across America, that turned out to be the best public policy decision America has ever taken. Because that massive investment in giving a free college a high school education to everybody in America, it raised the level of what economists call human capital in America and accounts for almost all of our growth in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it leveled the playing field because everybody got the... Now, it might have been a little bit of a hard sell to say to the rich farmer or banker or, 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 you know, or lawyer in town, your kids are already off to Chicago, but you should pay so that these other poor kids in town get a, get a free secondary education. But that's effectively what happened. And it happened, I think, because it happened in the first in the places in which people did think of everybody's kid as it's they're all our kids. We're all going to be better off, and that's true today. This is not altruism. We would the whole country would be better off economically, economically, politically, socially, morally, if we could begin to invest more in these kids. Let's start with economically. What sure. would it do to our economy? Well. Um, you can phrase it positively or negatively. The cost, the best cost, uh, the best cost estimates are that it cuts, in not investing in poor kids costs us about 4% of GDP a year. Um, a big chunk of that is, um, you might think, a big chunk of that is um, uh, the criminal justice system. If we don't invest in poor kids, that's going to raise the number of kids that get involved in the criminal justice system. We're going to have to pay for prisons and all that. Actually, that's not the biggest thing. Welfare, welfare payments to these kids are almost, that's not a major part of the cost. Bigger are the health of these kids because they're much less healthy and they're going to, they're, uh, poor kids are now much more obese than rich kids, and they're getting more obese faster, so they're going to get more diabetes, and they're going to get sicker longer, and we're going to, somebody's going to have to pay for that, right? And that turns out to cut a, probably a percent, point, percent and a half all of our GDP each year, that just, these, just the health of this, these poor kids. But the other really important part of it is the lost opportunity, the, the workforce side of this. We're writing off 23 million potential workers every year. Mary Sue is not, going to, is not in a position to be a produ productive worker, and that means they're not, through no fault of their, her own, she's not going to be contributing to the, if you have a very simple-minded maker-taker view of the world, you say, well, she's going to be a taker. But Mary Sue's not responsible for that. Maybe her parents screwed up, but Mary Sue didn't. And it's, this is the most important point I want to say. Helping Mary Sue won't hurt my Miriam, my, my own granddaughter. It'll help my granddaughter. My granddaughter will be better off. I don't just mean morally. I mean economically, materially better off if we also invest in other people's kids. That's the, this is not a zero-sum game. It's a positive-sum game. And you said 4% of something, but it's, what's that, $500 billion a year or something? Yeah, over the life, it's like five, over the lifetimes of these kids, it's, the best estimate is $5 trillion. So we're talking, you know, a trillion here, a and trillion there. And you also gave a comparison, <laughs> yeah, bad's up, as Dorsen said. Um, you also gave a comparison, which I'd love you to try to spin out, because I'm not sure I can remember it exactly, that if Atlanta had the same sort of equality. equality of opportunity that Salt Lake City had, the economy of Atlanta would be what? 11% bigger. 
And that's just an economic fact, right? Yeah, this, this comes from the, the, the Federal Reserve Board um, uh, in uh, Boston, the economists at the Federal Reserve Board. They've calculated um, you know, the growth rate of different, different parts of America. There are other things that affect the growth rate, of course, of, of, uh, of given mm -hmm. metropolitan areas. But holding all those other things constant, um, and then you can ask, well, OK, why is Atlanta so low and why is Salt Lake City so high? And that's another discussion. But the fact of the matter is, that makes a big difference. Everybody in Atlanta would be better. Everybody would know they would be better off if they just paid a little more attention to the poor kids. All right, so you said economically, politically, and morally. Yeah. We've done economically, politically. Isn't there a disfranchisement, that gap yeah, too? Yeah, it's partly disenfranchisement because these poor kids, as you would guess, they are completely disconnected from politics. They have really kind of, frankly, bizarre views about politics because they're just so completely... Think of these poor kids as basically having been unplugged from all of the networks of information and discussion and so on that we know about. Um, and so they think of the political sphere as malevolent. Well, it sort of is from their point of view. Um, but, and so, but you know, in a way, the, the first order of worry you'd have about that, you know, peasants with pitchforks marching on the, on the um, gated communities, that's not likely to happen because these kids, they're not likely to they don't have the organizational skills necessary to get the pitchforks and march on the, you know, it'd be tempting for me to say to rich folks, better be careful, if you don't help these poor kids, they're going to march on your, you know, on your estates. But that, but, and I don't want to, if you go back to the people who reflected on the, uh, where fascism came from in the 1930s, what the, the academic reflections in retrospect on that period, um, say is that the, it, the, the people who were fodder for extremism under extreme international and economic duress were the people who were disconnected. I'm talking about the people in, in Germany and, and, and in Italy and elsewhere. Um, and so it isn't, even though normally the political apathy of, of these poor kids keeps them from being a threat to democracy. I mean, except if you care about equality, it's not so great for the equality of America that these kids are not going to, remember, this is the lower third of America that's not taking part in our political system. But it's, it's a little risky to have that many people in the society who actually don't even think of themselves as a member of the society. But the more compelling argument, perhaps, and yeah. the economic or even political one, is the basic moral one and the moral creed of what America stands for. I sometimes get accused, I'm, I'm a Jew, I was converted from Methodism a long time ago, but I sometimes get accused of being an evangelical, which is, um, in some respects, uh, uh, I, I appreciate the, the uh, attack. <laughs> um, I, I think it's just wrong. It's, it just isn't right. That Mir Mir Miriam is my granddaughter. She's working really hard. She made one really good decision in her life, my, my Miriam. She chose well-educated parents. Mm -hmm. And grandparents, yeah. And, and great-grandparents. She told wonderful <laughs> grandparents. And, and Mary Sue made only one mistake. She chose the wrong parents. And that's fundamentally Wrong, morally wrong. It's not what America stands for. No, it isn't. Um, somebody once, uh, somebody noted you have all these, you know, 
descriptions of issues, but you don't offer enough solutions. Right. This is somebody who obviously did not get to the last two chapters <laughs> of your book, right. one of which is called What Can Be Done. Uh, so tell us what can be done. Well, there's some big things that can be done, big hard things that can be done that would have a, that would have a big effect, but it's, it's going to be a heavy lift. I mean, for example, the best single thing we could do is to end this 30-year stagnation of, of real wages for, for men, uh, less educated men. That would have a powerful effect on the family structure and on the lives of these kids. Um, and you know, that we've been, we've, how to get the American economy working for working class Americans is a matter of a lot of political debate. I don't know that I have anything much to add to that except it would be a big deal for these, for these poor kids. Um, there are other big things that would be maybe not quite as heavy lift as that, uh, like er universal early childhood education. We know, we know, I'll repeat this, we know that early childhood education, high quality, expensive, <laughs> early child education has a very high payback rate. And if, you're, if people here in the room are, there's a debate about that, but actually most of the debate is pretty ill-informed. And the, if you look really at the data, that's just true. So the return on investment is what percent? Oh, it's about a, a, a 10 or 11, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 percent. It's better than what I'm getting for my um, retirement accounts. I don't <laughs> Treasury, know Treasury bills, yeah. Um, um, so that, and that works. It works especially, in, it, there's debate about whether Head Start works or not. I'm trying to summarize very quickly. And it turns out the right answer is cheap Head Start doesn't work, but, head, but expensive Head Start does work, and it works so well that you can get your money back. But don't think you can buy that on the cheap if you, if you just have, it's just, if it's just high quality, you know, just, you know, mm -hmm. basically uh, highfalutin daycare or babysitting, then it doesn't have the effect. But a serious early childhood education makes a difference. That's... Um, and that is not yet entirely politicized. We're in this terribly polarized world, politically polarized world. That's a shock, I know, to uh, people in this city. But, um, but the, the most comprehensive early childhood education program in America is in Oklahoma, which is a deep red state. So that's something we could do. Um, there are smaller things that we could do, like um, uh, mentoring for kids, um, and I don't mean drop-by mentoring. The, the crucial thing about mentoring, and you know this from your own experience, Walter, is not having lunch once a year with the child and saying, how's, your, how's the things going? You've got to be in their lives, supporting them, providing them with the, you know, these, helping to provide them with these airbags and so on, which I know you're doing, and that, that, that would make a big difference, um, and that's something any one of us could do. The, <laughs> frankly, as I say in the book, the, the fact that school boards, without even thinking about the consequences, have, made, have instituted pay-to-play um, for what was once a, everybody in America thought it was a part of what you got when you got a, a secondary, public secondary education, that you also got these soft skills from football and band and chorus and so on. Go to your school board and ask them, do you have pay-to-play? And if they say, yes, but of course we've got waivers, then tell them that the evidence shows waivers are not worth the paper they're written on because kids know about who's got a waiver and the, and the stigma attached to, be, to getting a waiver is, means they don't, doesn't work. So, and then while you're there, ask the, the school superintendent what else you could do to help kids in that, in that school. So there are a lot of range of things from big things that will require mobilization of the country to small things. That and you talked about. about high school becoming universal and free when we went from the agriculture to the industrial right. age and went through the problems right. of the um, progressive era, right. scissors. 
now making community college, trade school, and early college right. universal and free? Yeah, it's yes, that's right. And then we do. I do talk quite a bit about that that part of the education system. Um, it, and it's great that the president has called attention to that by, by and, and other local governments around the country have called attention to that by saying, let's make um, community college free. Um, that's, that's great. But actually, the, the evidence shows it's not so much the dollar cost of the, of the community college. It's the, it, the, I talked about these kids not having airbags. They also don't have any adults who can kind of help them guide, guide them through the complicated process of figuring out what school they should go to and so on. These kids lack savvy. And the thing that's most important is that in cutting back funding for community colleges, for example, across the country, those cuts have come disproportionately on the advising, counseling, and, and supporting these kids. And that's the worst thing to cut because yeah. that's, what means, that's what makes the dropout rate of community colleges very high. The dropout rate for community colleges is very high, but not for financial reasons, but because these kids don't have somebody there saying, you know, have you thought about taking that course next term and this course this term? You know, we were in St. Louis uh, earlier last week with Kiana Cassells and Charlie Firestone of the Aspen Institute. We're doing a dialogue with some of the students in Ferguson and St. Louis right. on race. And among the things that came out of it was both the students in the high school and the former superintendent of the high school saying it's not only making community college free it should be seamless which is you don't sit there worrying about getting from eighth grade to ninth grade I mean there may be a little bit of rigmarole right. you have to go through right. it should be a seamless process right. of going from senior year into the proper community college trade school whatever it may be yeah that's 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 right mm -hmm. the uh, other things you've talked about, I mean it would be simple enough to have the vision, if not the execution, of every kid having a mentor, every kid having an after-school program, right. every kid having a good summer opportunity, right. every right. kid having early childhood, every kid having um, um, right. yeah, post-secondary post uh, post education. Right. Those are not complicated things. They are really questions of political will, which That's leads right. to my last question before we open it up. You made a joke that wasn't funny nor a joke that we're a partisan city right now. Um, you've been extraordinarily nonpartisan, if I remember. It was George W. Bush you were involved with, John Bridgeland, who works with us on the Franklin Project, you've been close to and been helping us there. You uh, advised Paul Ryan when he came out with his right. economic opportunity plan. I think Jeb Bush, as well as President Clinton brought you to Camp David, and Barack Obama gave you the National Medal of something or other, right? Uh, yeah. no, which one was it? <laughs> it was the National Humanities Medal. And okay. the more, more relevant thing is, I, I, as long as we're dropping names, sure. um, <laughs> I spent two hours talking to the President and the Cabinet okay. about, so about this, is, this issue, about this issue. Right. And then the Roosevelt Room, I remember there was uh, Gene right. Sperling and others pulled right. it together. So how do we make this the moral and economic issue of 2016? and not make it part of a partisan divide? Well, you know, that's, that's the $64,000 question from my point of view. I do think, just to re recapitulate what you said, 
Um, there, there are some tough questions about exactly how you design the right programs to fix the problem. But that actually, this is not a case where we don't have any good policy ideas. This is a case where, as you said, we don't have the political will. And we don't have the political will fundamentally, I think, because we've moved ourselves as a country into a situation where we don't think of these as our kids. We think of them as somebody else's kid. Um, if you go to Parkland High School now in the parking lot, you can see parked right next door to each other BMW convertibles driven there by kids whose parents live on the, on, the, lake. Uh, the, on the lake, and junkers, we would have called them in my day, in which the kids live. And the parents of the one don't think of the other kids as one of our kids. That, that's why I called the book Our Kids, because I'm trying to get, I think that's a crucial step we've got to get over. It's true that political figures on both sides of the aisle, I think correctly, see this as a major issue. It's been part of my goal to make, make this problem of, of the opportunity gap the central domestic issue in the 2016 elections. I want to have this be the litmus test. If you're a serious candidate for President of the United States, what is your solution to the problem of the opportunity gap? That's, that's my aspiration. And I think we're making some progress there. As you say, a number of candidates on both sides have begun to talk about the opportunity gap. And they won't agree, of course, that's fine. I, that's the way democracy works. If you both, we all agree that we've got a problem here, then you know, we can talk about how to fix the problem. I do worry, though, that this will turn into a search for uh, villains, um, and, we'll, and, and the political um, magnetic field here will be so strong that this whole issue will get pulled into it's all about you know, fixing the economy, or it's all about fixing the families, or is it really cultural or really structural, that whole thing, and that we'll lose sight of the kids. And I want to focus on the kids. Thank Professor you Robert Putnam, thank you very much. That was Robert Putnam and Walter Isaacson recorded live in Washington on March 30th, 2015, for the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. You can discover more about our programs at our website, aspeninstitute.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. And while you're there, please take a few moments to rate and review the podcast and share it with your colleagues and friends. You can follow us on Twitter at Aspen Institute and on Facebook. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. 